Welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Centralia, Washington. During each episode, you will hear the sermons, liturgy, discussions, and interviews from the various weekly gatherings here at Christ Covenant Church. If you would like to find out more, please visit us online at ChristCovenantCentralia.com. That's ChristCovenantCentralia.com. Please enjoy the following audio. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. From Psalm 118. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go into them and I will praise the Lord. This gate of the Lord into which the righteous shall enter. I will praise thee, for thou hast heard me, and art become my salvation. The stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord hath made. He will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. So lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let's pray. O God, strength and praise of the faithful, grant us increase of holiness in thy salvation. Exalt us with thy right hand in good things, that thou mayest open to us the gates of righteousness. And we entering therein may with the righteous evermore give thanks unto thee. Wherefore, we say glory be to the Father, whose mercy endureth forever. Glory be to the Son, the cornerstone, the King that cometh in the name of the Lord. Glory be to the Holy Ghost, the Lord who hath showed us light, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. And amen. Well, this morning we continue to work our way through the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And if you look in your bulletin, I'm going to try to Uh, print in it which question we are working through. And uh, question four asks this, what is God? What is God? Answer, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Here, the catechism tries to condense into one sentence what the whole Bible teaches about the one divine essence. And while not perfect, they do a pretty good job of summarizing some important truths. In the coming weeks, we will work through each of these uh, divine names. So if you want to memorize this with your kids, we're going to be on question four for uh, maybe a couple months. The first name or the first truth about God, after recognizing that he exists, is to believe that God is a spirit. As Jesus says in John 4, 24, God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Or as Paul says in Acts 17, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. For in him we live and move and have our being as certain also of your own poets have said. God is a spirit. This means he is immaterial and non-physical. Just as you cannot see or feel the wind, but only its effects, so also with God. The Westminster Confession expands upon this definition, saying, He is a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, 
parts, or passions. In theological terms, we call this the divine simplicity. God is one. God is not composed of different parts like we are, made of body and soul. God is a pure spirit and utterly transcends time and space. And this leads us to the first and most important rule in all of theology, which is never make God into a creature. Never make God into a creature. Just about every heresy, every idolatry, every false idea about God reduces back to this error of attributing something to the divine essence that belongs strictly and only to us among creatures. This is what Israel did when they fashioned the golden calf. This is what pagans do when they think of God as merely a stronger, bigger, more powerful version of us like Zeus. And this is the ever-present error that we also are prone to make, to make God into a creature, to bring him down to our level, and to forget that the divine essence is so far beyond us that we cannot ever know him as he knows himself. How much of the ocean can you drink into your belly? How much of the sun can you hold with two hands? How much of infinity can you grasp with your intellect? The answer to all of these questions is not very much. The finite cannot comprehend the infinite. It can only apprehend some small glimpses of his essence as he tells us and reveals in his word. The truth is that the distance between a worm and an angel is closer than the distance between man and God. A worm is more like a burning seraph than we are like the divine essence. And why? Because God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, and we are not. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins, so as you are able, let us kneel before the Lord. Father, we confess all of these sins to you in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen. Let us rise for the assurance of God's pardon. The enemies of God are brought down and fallen. But we are risen. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is God's mercy towards them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Saints of Christ's covenant church, because you have confessed your sins holding nothing back, it is my joy to announce to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. Thanks be to God. Our sermon text this morning is from the gospel according to Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. These are the words of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Let's pray. Father, as we begin this gospel of Mark, we ask that you would teach us by your Holy Spirit, teach us to walk and follow in the footsteps of Christ and prepare us for that final day of the Lord. For we ask this in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen. What does the glory of God look like? What does the glory of God look like? If you were Isaiah, or Ezekiel, or Moses on Sinai, What would you have seen 
when the glory of the invisible God was made manifest to human eyes. What does the glory of God look like? In Isaiah 6, the prophet says this. He says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Likewise, in Ezekiel chapter 1, the prophet Ezekiel sees what he calls the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And in that appearance, he also sees a throne and he sees a chariot. He sees wheels within wheels and eyes all around. He sees four living creatures called cherubim that have four faces. Ezekiel 1 says, as for the likeness of their faces, they four had the face of a man, the face of a lion, the face of an ox, and the face of an eagle. And above the firmament that was over their heads was the likeness of a throne, as the appearance of a sapphire stone, and upon the likeness of the throne was the likeness as the appearance of a man above upon it. What does the glory of God look like? Well, it looks like a man upon a throne with seraphim above and terrifying cherubim below. But who is this man? Who is this one sitting upon the throne? Well, that is what the gospel of Mark is going to unveil. What is only a shadowy outline and a dark mystery in the Old Testament, the four gospels come to reveal. And each gospel has something distinct to add to our vision of God, to paint for us a portrait of who it is who sits upon that fiery throne. Um, In the history of the church, each of the four gospels came to be associated with one of these four faces of the cherubim. And uh, there's debate about uh, some of the faces and which one goes with which. Uh, but, but as I take it, which is the correct way, uh, Ma- Matthew, Matthew connects with the ox, Mark with the lion, Luke with the eagle, and John with the man. And uh, it would be a whole other sermon to explain how this all works. But let me just give you a, a little taste of how some of this links up. Um, so the ox is a Uh, what we would call like a priestly or mosaic animal. So in the sacrificial system, uh, the ox is what represents uh, the priest. And if you read Matthew with an eye to this, you'll see that uh, Jesus is very much presented as this new Moses figure. He's tempted for 40 days. Israel's tempted for 40 years. He gives a sermon on the Mount. The law is given from Sinai. Matthew makes just countless parallels between the history of Israel and the life of Jesus. And as the first gospel in the canon, uh, Matthew really mirrors the first phase of Old Testament history that runs from the book of Genesis through Joshua. So uh, that's Matthew. That's just a little bit of how it links up. Uh, Mark then is the gospel of the lion. And the lion, I think even still today, we have this association where the lion is a kingly animal. So you think of Solomon, he had lions on either side as you ascended uh, the throne. Uh, I I had the opportunity to visit Venice maybe a decade ago, and there's a St. Mark's Cathedral in Venice. 
and you know the the dealers there there's people selling trinkets and one of the things they sell you is uh this uh, image of a lion with wings and this is the image of mark the evangelist so they you know they want to claim this is the church that mark planted long ago so there's there's still this association today of the lion as a kingly animal and if uh, you read through Mark with an eye to this, as we're going to do in this sermon series. You'll see that Mark very intentionally draws parallels between Jesus and David. Jesus, for Mark, is a new David, the true lion from the, from the line of Judah, who comes to reunite Israel and reign as king. So if you want to understand uh, the gospel of Mark, you really have to know the story of David. You need to know that he was anointed as king when someone else was on the throne. Who was on the throne when David was anointed? Saul. Yeah. So Saul's the first king. David replaces him. And then after he is anointed, does he just, you know, ascend the throne? No. He, he spends some time where? In the wilderness, being hunted down, persecuted by Saul. While in the wilderness, David amasses an army. He has mighty men. He has disciples who follow him and swear allegiance to him. And it is only after the death of Saul that David becomes king of all Israel. He, he, he unites uh, both north and south together, choosing Jerusalem as the capital and holy city. So Mark portrays Jesus as this new and better David, as a lion roaring in the wilderness. Jesus is, as we will see in coming weeks, fighting the forces of darkness. He is destined for Jerusalem. That is his destination. But as we will see, this royal path, this path of the lion, is not an easy one. It is indeed a road to crucifixion. That is what a true king, a true lion, does for his people. And if you've read Narnia, you're already catching kind of hints of Aslan here, right? So uh, that's the gospel of Mark in miniature, a lion roaring in the wilderness, making his way to the throne in Jerusalem. And in these opening uh, three verses, we are given the final cause, the purpose, the most important thing for which this gospel was written. So let's turn now to our text and see what uh, that is. So verse one uh, begins this way, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Mark begins by telling us uh, the single most important truth there is. That is, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. The name Jesus literally means Yahweh saves, Jehovah saves. In Greek, this is Yesu, which just translates the Hebrew name Yehoshua or Joshua. So Joshua and Jesus is the exact same name. And Joshua means Yahweh is salvation or Jehovah saves. So the name of Jesus is itself a confession of faith. It is a confession that the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob is himself salvation. That is what Joshua means. That is what Jesus means. Christ, on the other hand, or Christu, is not a last name, but it is a title. And it translates the Hebrew word Mashiach or Messiah, which refers to an anointed one. And you think, who gets anointed in the Old Testament? What kinds of people get anointed? 
Kings and priests. Yeah, kings and priests. And kind of prophets too, but most of the prophets were priests. So priests and kings, they are anointed with oil. They were set apart for a sacred work. And in Jesus, both the priestly and kingly office is fulfilled. And this is actually something that is prophesied in Zechariah 6. So uh, the book of Zechariah, it's, uh, uh, this prophet is uh, speaking some, somewhere about 520 years before Christ. And listen to what it says in Zechariah 6. It says, Then take silver and gold and make crowns, so multiple crowns, and set them upon the head of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. And speak unto him and say, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord. And he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne. And he shall be a priest upon his throne, and the council of peace shall shall be between them both. So uh, this is a a prophecy of the union between the priestly and kingly offices. What formerly belonged to two different men would now belong to one man in this Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, and by analogy, of course, to Christ. It was understood that the priest would wear the kingly crown until the Messiah Came. So if any of you guys know the Lord of the Rings, remember the throne, uh, the throne is held in a stewardship. And this is where Tolkien is getting that idea. So the priest, the, the line of kings has been demolished. They have been destroyed. And the priest is just kind of holding the crown in lieu of the Messiah to come. So he's there as a steward and they're just anticipating in Jerusalem who is going to be our our king. We know that the priest is the most powerful uh, religious leader, but they also need a political leader. But at the time, they're under uh, Persian rule. So they're awaiting this coming Messiah. So, of course, Jesus is that Christ. Jesus is that anointed one. He is the one who forever unites the priestly and kingly offices. Now, uh, so far in this sentence, the name Jesus and the title Christ might only refer to a great human being, a great king like David or a great priest like Joshua. But Mark gives us the punchline up front, and he tells us that this is not merely a human being. This is the Son of God. And everything that follows in this book is a testimony to that truth. It is gospel. This is what the gospel is. The gospel is not only justification by faith. The gospel is not just forgiveness of sins. The gospel is not just hope of eternal life. Those things are, of course, essential and important, but the gospel is much bigger than that. It is something new in the history of the world. It is the good news that God has become man in Jesus Christ, and therefore everything he does is gospel. From the first chapter of Matthew to the last chapter of John, all of this is good news that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. It is especially the good news for Israel that a new king has come. A king who exemplifies everything that they would have sang about and prayed about in the Psalms. Psalm 99, 4. He is a king who will judge justly, who loveth judgment and dost establish equity. 
that executeth judgment and righteousness in Jacob. He is a king before whom all the earth trembles, who makes the nations to be glad, who has clouds and darkness round about him. Righteousness and judgment are the habitation of his throne. A fire goeth before him and burneth up his enemies round about. That's who Israel is awaiting. That is who Isaiah saw. That's who Ezekiel and Moses and the prophets beheld. And he is the one that David wrote about in the Psalms. That is what it means for the Messiah to come as king. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. The rest of the book is just an elaboration of this truth. And Mark is going to prove this truth. He is going to demonstrate who Jesus is in innumerable ways. And yet, as we will see, it is not until the crucifixion, until Jesus is hanging from the cross and breathes his last, that a Roman centurion, not a Jew, not a disciple, not a, uh, some God-fearer, a Roman soldier, a Roman centurion says this, truly, this man was the son of God. No other human being in the entire gospel of Mark will make that confession. We'll, have, we'll see in future weeks, some demons will do this, but no human beings until this Roman centurion. And so Mark's purpose in writing this gospel is to make us say this. To make us say with the Roman centurion, truly, this man that we have just read about is the son of God. So if you get uh, nothing else from this sermon series, get that. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the son of God. So that's the thesis for this book and really this whole sermon series. And then in verses two to three, we are given a riddle to solve about the identity of Jesus. And so if you look in your sermon notes, um, I have included some Old Testament quotations here. Uh, So let me read verses two and three, and then we'll uh, go into this. It says, as it is written in the prophets, behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So here we have the first proof of who Jesus is. And it is given to us in the form of three Old Testament quotations that have been woven together and slightly modified. And if we study how Mark does this, how he interprets the Old Testament, we can gain insight into who Jesus is and what the rest of this book is going to be about. So uh, let's look at these verses one at a time and you can uh, see them in your bulletin. The first quotation that Mark uses is from Exodus 3.20. And if you know the book of Exodus, what chapter is the Ten Commandments in? 20. So Exodus 20 is Ten Commandments, and then 21 to 23 are all of these case laws, or what we might call the the law of the covenant. So this is how you, you know, this is how long a slave can be here. This is the penalty for stealing, those kinds of things. And then right at the end of all of these laws about ordering society comes Exodus 23, 20. And it says this, Behold, I send an angel before thee to keep thee in the way and to bring thee into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Provoke him not, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But if thou shalt indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy unto thine enemies and an adversary unto thine adversaries. For mine angel shall go before thee and bring thee in unto the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. 
and I will cut them off. That's Exodus 23, 20 to 23. So what is Mark doing here? Well, when God says, behold, I send an angel before thee, he is saying, prepare to enter the promised land. Follow my angel. He is going to do battle and cut off enemies of the land. Uh, In both uh, Greek and Hebrew, angel and messenger is the exact same word. So our English Bibles try to uh, pick which one it is because we think of angels as divine beings. But an angel and a messenger in both Greek and Hebrew, everywhere in the Bible, it's it's the same uh, word. And then you have to determine by context whether it's a divine being or just a human being. And Mark seems to be kind of playing with this ambiguity. So that's that's the first quotation that Mark cites in verse 2. Uh, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face. So the context is they're in where at the time of getting this law? Where are, where are they? Where's Israel when they get the law? They're in the wilderness. Okay, so remember this wilderness theme. Here, here it comes. Uh, the second quotation comes from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, which is itself a quotation of Exodus 23:20, but kind of taking on a new context. So Malachi, the last of the prophets, describes two different messengers. There is a forerunner who prepares the way, and then there is the Lord, the messenger of the covenant who comes after. So listen to Malachi 3, 1 to 3. It says, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom whom ye seek, shall suddenly come to his temple even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord in offering in righteousness. So if you're a Jew... Reading Malachi, this is the last word from the Lord until, you know, there's going to be about 400 years of relative prophetic silence. You're wondering, when is this going to happen? How's this going to go down? So there is this expectation that there's going to be a messenger. Some some of them think it's going to be three messengers, some two messengers, some one messenger. So there's ambiguity in the text and a, a question, a hermeneutical question that the Jews would have. So we see here there's two messengers and Mark, uh, as we'll see next week, is going to identify the first messenger as John the Baptist. And if John is the first messenger, then who is the messenger of the covenant? Who is the Lord who comes like a refiner's fire? Well, it's Jesus. Mark is identifying Jesus with Yahweh, with the Lord. Jesus is the God who comes like a refiner's fire to purify Israel. So when we see Jesus uh, casting out demons, healing the sick, confronting the Pharisees, you are meant to have Exodus 23, Malachi 3 running in your mind. This is the purification that he said would come. This is the angel cutting off enemies and the refiner's fire purifying the land. So that's quotation number two, Malachi 3. The third quotation comes from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. And Isaiah, really after First and Second Samuel, is another book that really helps you understand Mark. It looms large over this gospel. 
Uh, when in verse 1 it says the beginning of the gospel, that word gospel draws much of its meaning from Isaiah's gospel. Isaiah 52, 7 says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings. That's gospel. That publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. So if you were to go back and ask Isaiah, Isaiah, what is the gospel? Isaiah would say that God reigns as king. That's, that's the essence of the gospel. And so Mark sets up his gospel with Isaiah, with Malachi and Exodus in the foreground. And he quotes in verse three from Isaiah 40, which begins this way. And this is a, a really powerful text. So I'm going to start in Isaiah Uh, chapter 40, verse 1, and go through verse 5. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her, that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned. For she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. So this is the promise of the gospel, that God himself would come and he would comfort his people, his glory would be revealed, and he would reign as king from Zion. And Mark is saying that Jesus is that person. He is that God. He is that King who Isaiah spoke of. So what does the glory of God look like? It looks like Jesus Christ. And so Mark quoting Isaiah 40 verse 3 says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So here's one of the modifications that Mark makes to Isaiah. In Isaiah, the paths are the paths of our God. And Mark changes this. He changes it to his paths with the his referring to Jesus. So Mark is saying that the paths of God are the paths where Jesus walks. The place where that path, uh, that way of the Lord begins is in the wilderness with John crying out, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So let's put this all together. What is the cumulative force of these three quotations? And what relevance are they to us? Well, what this means is that Jesus is the beginning of a new exodus. The gospel is a new beginning for Israel, a new beginning for the Gentiles, a new beginning for humanity. And if Jesus is leading a new exodus, what does that mean for Jerusalem? It means that Jerusalem has become Egypt. The promised land has become a land of oppression. And the place that God once led his people to must be reconquered. And so this is why the gospel begins for Mark in the wilderness. The wilderness is the place where God prepares men and nations for conquest. It is the place of testing and the staging ground for holy war. The book of Numbers is all about this. It's all about the turning of Israel into a heavenly army. That's what all those numbers and censuses are about. It's counting the troops. 
The title of the book of Numbers in the Hebrew Bible is Bamidbar, in the wilderness. The wilderness is where God rallies the troops. It is where he turns princes into kings. It is where he turns shepherds into prophets. And it is where he turns Levites into priests. It was where Moses was prepared before he went down to Egypt. It was where Joshua was trained before he conquered 31 kings. It was where David was prepared and persecuted before ascending the throne. And perhaps most importantly, the wilderness is where worship is established. It is where the tabernacle is built and where God comes and dwells with his people. The wilderness, the deserted places, is where God prepares his people for conquest. And that is where Mark's gospel begins. So what does this mean for us today? Well, it means that if you want to follow Jesus, you're going to have to live in the wilderness for a while, whatever that looks like for you. The wilderness can come to you in many uh, different forms. It means you must leave what is familiar in Egypt, in the city, the leeks and the onions and the bondage to sin. You must leave that behind so that you can be purified and turned into a tabernacle for God. If you want to become truly free, if you want to become who God made you to be, it is going to require some time in the wilderness. There are no great men. There are no great women who did not endure many trials in deserted places. Hebrews 13 says, Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered where? Outside the gate. It says, therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one that is to come. So there are many layers to this wilderness motif, but one of them is separation from the world alienation from sinful society. It means being made into someone else so that the world hates you. It means being made into someone else so that the world no longer recognizes you as one of their own. Seeing that as Jesus says, you live in the world, but you are not of it. If you want to follow Jesus, you need to get very comfortable with the world hating you. It's just what Jesus says. That's the practical implication of Jesus Christ is the son of God. So I'll close with this. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12 that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Which means there is no easy way to attain to glory. All of us are going to suffer. All of us are going to die. All must endure various seasons of hardness. But the good news of the gospel is that in Jesus Christ, God gives us himself. He gives us his spirit. He gives us his life. He gives us whatever we need to endure the wilderness and enter triumphantly into the new Jerusalem. Christ opens for us the kingdom of heaven. And so no matter how hard or how grievous or how weary this life may get, resurrection life 
is rushing towards you and you cannot stop it. Every day is a step closer to glory, to a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And if we endure, if we are faithful through the wilderness, faithful even unto death, Jesus says in Revelation, I will give thee the crown of life. I will give thee the morning star. I will confess your name before my father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the spirit saith unto the churches. In the name of the father and the son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Father, you know uh, the wilderness of our soul, the wilderness of living in this nation that is so uh, worldly and godless and Uh, opposed to you. God, we do pray that you would deliver us. We ask that you would give us hope, hope for the city that lasts forever and hope that we can see in our time, this world become more like the world that is to come. God, make us to be faithful. Make us not to grumble in the wilderness, but to trust your provision, leaning upon your strength, even as our Lord Jesus did. Pray all this in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen. This meal before us is a reminder that God always feeds his people, even in the wilderness. Jesus says in John 6, I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Whatever season that you are in, whether it is a season of harvest and plenty or a season of scarcity and struggle, in Christ there is zero lack. It says in Psalm 8411, No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. And so here is a very good thing. Here is the best thing, bread and wine, the gospel of your God. It is offered to all who will come to him and believe on his name. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. The charge is this. I want you to meditate uh, this week upon the wilderness. What does God do there? What does he do there in scripture? What has he done already in your life in those seasons? What lessons can only be learned in the wilderness and nowhere else? Meditate on these things this week. Receive now the benediction. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. And amen. Amen. Go in peace.